0: So, how are you this morning? You ready? So, it's hard to miss that there's so much interest in remaking animated fairy tales into live action motion pictures. Um, I think maybe we just like to rehear the stories over and over again. I think it began a few years ago with two um, live action motion pictures on the version of Snow White that hit the box office. However, if you remember, the two films could not have been more different. One was a family friendly, quirky version, Mirror Mirror, that I endured with my then teenage daughters. The other, Snow White and the Huntsman, was sinister and dark retelling that was not for children. But the most fascinating version of Snow White is actually the 1812 version by the Brothers Grimm. Has anyone ever read the original version of Snow White? Oh, perfect. It's both quirky and disturbing. So Grim Snow White begins much like all the retellings. Um, Snow White has a vain stepmother who's murderously jealous of her. There is a huntsman who's ordered to take her into the forest and kill her and bring back evidence that she is dead. Of course, the huntsman cannot kill sweet little Snow. And Snow is freed and finds life hiding with seven dwarfs in the forest. But in Grimm's tale, this is where things go different. When the stepmother discovers Snow White is alive, there's actually three attempts on her life. It's the third attempt that is the famous poison apple. The queen dresses like a um, farmer's wife, offers Snow an apple, and in one bite, she eats the apple, the bite, and she immediately is poisoned and goes into what is called a suspended state of animation. In other words, she looks dead. But she's not dead. She's mostly dead. You guys know Princess Bride. So the, the, the elves, or excuse me, the dwarfs, another story. The dwarfs believe that she's dead. They put her in a glass coffin, and they place her in the forest. In a glass coffin because they don't want to cover up her beauty. And reading from Brother Grimm's original story, here's the ending. Time passes, and a prince traveling through the land sees Snow White. He strides to her coffin and, enchanted by her beauty, instantly falls in love with her. The dwarfs succumb to his request to let him have the coffin. And as his servants carry the coffin away, they stumble on some roots. This causes the piece of poisoned apple to dislodge from Snow White's throat, awakening her. The prince then declares his love for her and a wedding is planned. Who knew it was not a kiss? Disney invented the kiss. It was a root heimlicking Snow White's throat. So the prince rescues Snow's lifeless body. But only after a piece of apple is dislodged from deep within her does she come alive. Enter into a relationship with the prince and the wedding is planned. By surrendering something deep within her, Snow gets more than a rescue. Snow got more than a touch. Because she received more than a kiss, she entered into a whole new life. She came alive. And I was reminded of Grimm's version of Snow White while studying Mark 5 and the lives of Jairus and the bleeding woman. In these two accounts in Mark, purposefully intersecting, we find two individuals enduring situations that are literally choking the life out of them. And as Jesus is traveling, they surrender their situations to Jesus. But by coming to Jesus for help, they get more than a rescue. They are offered a relationship with the living God. But to enter into this relationship, they would have to surrender more than they had planned. As Tim Keller writes, be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to and get from him far more than you bargained for. And this is exactly what we will begin to see as, if you're able, we stand to read the opening scenes, Mark 5, 21 to 28. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hand on her, so she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You can have a seat. So, from the opening scenes of these two life choking situations recorded in Mark, we are going to find that when we look to Jesus, we will release more than we planned. But we will receive more than we think possible. When we look to Jesus for help, we will, re- we will release more than we th- plan. But we will receive more than we think possible. Here we will discover two timeless realities supporting this. Life will choke us and there is a love that chases us. Life will choke us but there is a love that chases us. So first, life will choke us. Both chronic and crushing events happen to us all. Choking the life out of us. First, we see a crushing event. In Luke 8, we find that Jairus' daughter is his only daughter. A precious, only daughter, 12 years of delight is ending for Jairus. By age, gender, she's vulnerable, innocent, she's considered clean, and her culture pure. Before puberty, she's likely betrothed but has not yet entered into marriage. And this would be huge. In ancient Israel, a day, a girl didn't really come alive until her wedding day. It was the beginning of life, is when life would begin. So all Jairus holds dear is slipping out of his hands. His hopes and his dreams are dying right before his eyes. His suffering is enclosing him like a glass coffin. Sudden tragedy. Have you ever been there? It closes in. Sudden tragedy is like a glass coffin. It confines us. And it filters everything we see. I know this full well from, me, from Aubrey's date of diagnosis. My life radically changed. And everything about my world was filtered through this new crushing event. In a room this large, many of you have experienced much the same. Crushing diagnoses that have changed everything. Discoveries of betrayal, death, sudden financial devastation. Crushing situations come to us all eventually. As Jesus tells us in Matthew five forty-five, b For he, God, makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Life in this world in this broken world. The crushing will happen to us all. And when it does, we are often surprised, especially if we're just, especially if we're not evil. Just Jairus, he's a synagogue ruler, he's greatly devoted to God. He's given his life for other people to know the one true God. He's morally respectable, he's prominent. It would be understandable for Jairus to say, Why me? Why now? Falling on Jesus, he casts aside the expected dignity of a synagogue ruler. He's desperate. His little girl will die if Jesus doesn't come and if he doesn't come fast. But for the sake of Jairus, his daughter, and the crowd, Jesus refuses to be hurried. For in the crowd is somebody else's daughter whose life has been sucked out of her for as long as Jairus' daughter has brought him joy. The woman is not in a dire crushing situation but a desperately chronic one, a painful life, 12 years of devastation, 12 years of living through cycles of hope, disappointment, and despair. Most of her adult life, commentators believe probably since puberty, she has been unclean culturally, anemic physically, imagine her appearance, emotionally, relationally. She's probably never married. Intimacy with a bleeding woman was forbidden by Jewish law. If she was married, she would have been childless and likely divorced because of childlessness. And again, spiritually unclean. The Levitical law was clear. She was banned from worship, banned from community, because anyone who touched her would have to wait seven days of a purification period to be clean. She would make all who touched her unclean. So each day, each week, each month, each year, no cure to give her the life for which she longed. In fact, the cures have harmed her further. The cures have depleted her. The cures have left her destitute. Listen to what one historian writes were the cures for a bleeding woman. Take of Persian onions nine logs, boil them in wine, and give them to her to drink, and say, arise from your blood, but if this should fail, Set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and let someone come behind her and scare her and say, arise from your blood. But if this should not work, take a handful of cumin and a handful of crocus brew and a handful of fenugreek and on and on it goes. Superstition was likely most of the cures. Why do it? Because when you're in a chronic state, you will do anything, including be taken advantage of. I know that also full well. When Aubrey was first diagnosed, I cannot tell you how many remedies I was given to fix her. Spiritual remedies as well as physiological ones. Now, not all were superstitious, but many were. Superstition has left this bleeding woman financially, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally ruined. Unendingly alone, she has no advocate pleading with Jesus for her. As a first century Palestinian woman, she is destitute and her future looks absolutely worse. This woman has lost everything that makes you want to get up in the morning, everything that makes you want to live. This is her glass coffin, chronic pain. She is filtering all of her life through chronic, physical, emotional, financial, spiritual, and relational pain. Chronic diseases of the body do this to us, don't they? Chronic diseases of our soul, chronic diseases of our mind, and chronic diseases relationally. Bitterness, betrayal, unforgiveness that goes on and on. These deplete us. Like my friend who suffered at the hands of her family, working through a way to surrender, to forgive, to let God have his way, for him to seek justice on her behalf. This passage spoke to her. And she began the process of surrendering her situation. And after she was able to surrender it by grace through faith, she realized how exhausted she was. She said to me, I never realized how much unforgiveness and bitterness was sucking the very life out of me. But after releasing it to Jesus, taking them off my hook and putting them on God's hook, I have energy I never knew I had. Amen. Some of you know this story. And it was interesting because when I called her to get her permission to share, so if you think I'm talking about you, I'm not, that's the Holy Spirit. Um, When I asked for her permission to share, she said, oh, I need to do that again. 70 times 7, right? It's a process. This bleeding woman reaches for Jesus from behind. She casts aside expected outcast behavior. She risks defiling a man of God. Pushing through all her barriers, she trusts that t- touching Jesus' hem is her cure. This is incredible perseverance. Can you even imagine? This woman is an example of courageously pushing through everything, all that is depleting us. And when we do, when we make the difficult movement towards Jesus, we will release more than we plan, our right for justice maybe. We will release more than we plan, but we will receive far more than we think possible. Because although life will choke us, there is a love that chases us. Look again at Mark five twenty nine to 33 picking up there. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear. And trembling and fell down before him, told him the whole truth. Love chases the chronic. Jesus will not let this woman, though, touch and take off. Coming to Jesus for help meant that his very life was going to flow through her. A relationship was established Jesus releases his own power to heal her and this word power is the word is the Greek word where we get our word dynamite it's a reference to the holy spirit in the rest of the new testament but it's first in this text in the gospels the first reference to the dynamite power of god is flowing through Jesus to a bleeding woman her touch was life transforming And Jesus says, who has my life entered into? From Luke's account, it says that when she saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. So we believe fearful she hides herself until she's outed by Jesus. But once she's outed by Jesus, she then outs herself. Why? Why does she out herself? Is she afraid that she's caught? Does she feel Jesus' life flow into her? We don't know. But what we do know is she believes he is a man of God. And now she has evidence because he knows in a crowd that someone touched him. She tells her whole story, the entire truth in the presence of everyone. And imagine, my sisters, what do you think is happening while she's telling the entire crowd that she's been bleeding for 12 years? They are backing away. Right? And what's Jesus doing? He's drawing close. That is us. When Jesus outs us, when he outs our entire story, if others are backing away, Jesus is right there. He is moving in close. He's calling her daughter. Jesus outed her to bring her in to make clear that he is not a rabbit's foot. He is not a crocus brew. He is the son of God, the love of God sent by God to restore humanity. God sent Jesus to her. For more than her situation, he came for her to be his daughter. Mark 5:34 Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You have a father. Daughter, the living God is your advocate, far greater than Jairus. This is his touch. In its life restoring. Remember Jesus did nothing but that which the father told him to do. Sometimes we, see, we feel like we can run to Jesus. But God is somehow out there. And he's angry and he's distant. But we need to remember that Jesus is the love of God sent to us. It is the father who healed this woman. Many touched Jesus. But she drew power out of him. And she can now go in peace. Jesus is essentially saying to her, faith dried up your blood and there's no worries that will come back. This is more than a rescue. This is a relationship. I have come to give you a relationship with the living God. Another friend invited me into her crushing situation with an adult daughter. Rebellion and insult. Um, The relationship seemed to be broken. Broken. Wrecked emotionally, spiritually, physically. Each time we met, my friend wrestled with how to forgive, how to find peace. Ironically, it was just after an added insult and an added difficulty with her daughter that she miraculously woke up in peace the next day and had no 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 unforgiveness in her heart. And she said to me, "I want to know what verse I read that night. I want to know what prayer I prayed." So that I can do it again. (laughs) Don't we want to do this? Aren't we tempted to use the very word of God as a rabbit's foot? Give me a verse that will fix everything. We want to touch and take off. The word is not magic, this is not a superstition. It testifies to the one who heals, to the one who calls us daughter. It is more than an inspirational touch. It testifies to a relationship. As Alistair Begg writes, her cure was not because she touched him, but because she trusted him just like my friend. It wasn't because she read a specific verse, but it's because that verse testified to a God in whom she then placed her trust. Healed of your disease, clean, no seven-day cooling-off period, no priest to declare it. Because I am unashamed to be identified with your uncleanness. You are made clean. But as one who is unclean is made clean. Jairus's clean daughter is in danger of becoming unclean by death. Can you imagine at this point Jairus' panic, his anxiety, his frustration? A man. A synagogue ruler. Waiting for an unclean woman. Jesus. She's been like this for 12 years. Can she not wait another day? Really? Or couldn't you just let her touch you and take off like she wanted? Do we really need to have to have a conversation here? Remember, she told her whole story. Imagine waiting for that. We're in a hurry, Jesus. But Jesus won't be hurried. Oh, Jairus, when I am involved, there is no need to hurry As Tim Keller writes, it's not I will not be hurried even though I love you. It's I will not be hurried because I love you. My sisters, I have learned the hard way and I don't love it. But it is true. There are things that only waiting can teach us about God's love. There are things that only waiting can teach us about God's love. And one thing I'm looking forward to in heaven is no more waiting. Amen. This delay is God's love. Jairus' crushing pain cannot allow him to see this truth yet. He, like the diseased women, will first have to say yes to surrendering more than he planned. He will not just surrender a sick daughter. He will surrender a dead daughter. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Mark 535, some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher? Jairus' fear is now his reality. His nightmare is ending in absolute devastation But Jesus says to Jairus in 536, do not fear, only believe. When I am involved, there's no need to hurry. Timing is my love chasing you. Love chases the chronic and love chases the crushed. Do not fear, only believe. These are the same words used of the woman's faith. The word believe and faith. Do you not see what I just did? You did not lose a single moment while I was healing her. You gained everything. You saw a living illustration of who I am and why I came. Surrender, like the bleeding woman, more than you planned and, believe, and receive more than you think possible. Jairus, you too can become a living illustration of who I am and why I came. I came for more than your situation. I came for you. And this is what we see in the last passage, 538-42. to 42 along with me. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, "Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping." And they laughed at him. But he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, "Talitha kumi," which means "Little girl, I say to you, arise." And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Taking her by the hand, Jesus is unashamed to be identified with an uncleanness greater than bleeding a bleeding woman, death itself. Tenderly. He says, little girl, arise. And In this culture, this was very much like, daughter, rise and shine. Wake up. Jesus releases his own power to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Luke's account says her spirit returned to her. But Jairus, like the bleeding woman, had to say yes to surrendering more than he planned. And like the bleeding woman, he received more than he thought possible. But here's the question for us as we, as we wind this down. Why did Jesus out the woman's full story, but ask the girl's story be kept quiet? Because resurrection miracles are going to get Jesus murderously in trouble. They are going to take him to the cross, as we will see when he raises Lazarus from the dead next week. And Jesus is not yet done colliding into lives with the love of God. The hour has not yet come for Jesus. To surrender more than the bleeding woman and more than Jairus thought possible. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus said yes to surrendering his time, his energy, his comforts, his freedom, his reputation. To heal bodies and minds. Lives that are being choked by life. Saying yes, Jesus offered more than a rescue. Each time he offered a life-transforming relationship of which their healing was just a taste of what they would experience for all eternity. But soon as planned before time began, Jesus would willingly surrender everything he loved. To give us what only he can make possible. Jesus would not only be unashamed to identify with sinners, Jesus would become sin. Jesus would become unclean when the perfect son of God had all the sin of all who would trust on him was laid upon him. Jesus would become sin, surrendering his relationship with the living God to raise us into eternal life. Because, my sisters, we need more than a kiss to rise to new life. The real apple that is stuck deep in our throat is the forbidden fruit of Eden. When Adam and Eve rebelled against our father, a rebellion through which the crushing and chronic diseases of sin and suffering entered this world, choking our very lives. And unless it's dislodged, it will lead to the crushing death of eternal separation from our father. The only way to dislodge it is for Jesus to surrender his perfect life on a cross, in exchange for ours. And at that cross, it is God who declares his love for us. We who trust in him are now his son's bride. Raising Jesus from the dead, he ensured the wedding is planned. A whole new eternal life that begins now though. Because right now we can experience his presence, a taste of what is to come. Right now we have his power within us. Because of Jesus, we can take our Father's hand and we can know he will never let go. Romans 8 nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. So the question is will we, by faith, let his power flow through our life choking situations? And the life-choking situations of those we love. We can trust that God's timing is always love. Why would he give us his son and then ask us to wait needlessly? When we say yes to surrendering more than we planned, Jesus says yes to more than we think possible. Until he returns for us... This this does not mean we will have a physical, relational, or financial miracle. We might. But we are promised right now an even greater miracle, a spiritual one. We are promised a new heart. That ensures his power flows through us and makes what is humanly impossible. We can have peace and find purpose as we wait. Father, thank you. For the more powerful miracle of a healed heart than even a healed body and mind. I pray for us all right now, Lord, that we would release to you the life-choking situations in our lives right now or of those we love to you by grace, through faith. Will you ensure us that you will never let us go? And that you can give peace and you will bring purpose in the wait. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.